Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Title tonight, The Conquering Lamb and His Redeemed. There are 20 verses in chapter 14. There are only eight in chapter 15. I like to take these messages in bite-sized chunks, but this is a bigger bite than next week. So uh, uh, I think we'll get through it. 20 verses. Some of you may remember the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helen that happened on May 18, 1980. One man became a folk hero because he refused to leave his home in spite of all the warnings and evacuation orders. His name was Harry R. Truman, not the 33rd president. Okay? He was the owner and caretaker of Mount St. Helen's Lodge at Spirit Lake at the foot of the mountain. And he thought that he would have time to escape. The most deadly of all volcanic hazards are called pyroclastic flows. Uh, they are fast-moving currents of gas and volcanic matter that can move anywhere from the speed of 60 miles an hour to 435 miles an hour. That's how Harry R. Truman was killed. He was one of the 57 people who lost their lives that day. Revelation 14 and 15 is the calm before the storm, the great tribulation or the second half of the tribulation period. In chapter 16, the angels will pour out seven bowls of wrath or begin to. Uh, this, this is one last pause before the events of the second tribulation or the second half of the tribulation. So warnings have been sounded some have responded in faith during the church age, the age in which we live. Some will be responding in faith during the tribulation, refusing to take the mark of the beast, choosing to suffer as followers of the true Lamb of God. Well, chapter 14 begins with a vision of the Lamb of God and of his followers in verses 1 through 5. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harps, harping, harpers harping with their harps. What else would you harp with if you were a harper harping? Verse 3, sorry. I knew that was going to be a tough one to go through. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's look at what John saw and then what he heard. What he saw is in verse 1, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Some say this must be heavenly Mount Zion because of the reference to the throne. We see the throne in verse 3. We see it again in verse 5. And so they're thinking that it must be in heaven. Others think it's referring to Jerusalem on the earth and the throne that's there. Uh, but the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. 144,000 saints are with him. 
These are the 144,000 that we saw back in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4. Let me read that verse. You don't have to turn back. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now that verse is a prophetic section to show who would be sealed out of Israel during the tribulation time. There are specifically 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are all Israelites. Revelation 7-4 then, prophesying that, and now we see those those 144,000 again. Now others will be saved during the tribulation. They will die as martyrs. But these will survive the wrath of Satan, the work of Antichrist, the the false beast or the, the false prophet that we studied last week, And they're protected also from the wrath of God as those bowls of judgment are poured out upon the earth. They have his father's name written in their foreheads. This is a a marked contrast to those who took the mark of the beast in their hands or foreheads. This is a remnant of Israel who have God's name on their foreheads. You remember the remnant was one-third of the surviving Israelites If you've been keeping track of your your Bible reading, and you were in Zechariah last week, Zechariah 13, 8 talked about that remnant. It shall come to pass that in all the land saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. We'll have another reference to Zechariah later on, but I thought that was interesting that that was in our our Bible reading just this week. So these are the remnant, uh, at least 144,000. This is a mark that they have that symbolizes ownership, possession. It's a mark that indicates they have willingly followed the Lamb. Spurgeon points out, they do not have a big B for Baptist or any other denomination on their forehead. That's good to remember. There are going to be other people in heaven besides Baptists. Their Heavenly Father's name is on each one. What did John hear? That's what he saw. We see what he heard in verse 2. A voice from heaven. It sounded like the roar of many waters. It sounded like loud thunder. If you've ever been on the Maid of the Mist at the base of the Niagara Falls, I'm told that the sound decibels reach from 87 to 95 decibels in sound. A thunderclap is measured at 95 decibels. So it's interesting that those are both about the same level of sound. This is a sound that will be distinct, and people will hear it. John also heard the sound of people playing harps and singing a new song. What's the meaning of that new song? We see it several times in in the Old Testament, in the Psalms especially. It's a song of redemption. We all would agree on that. But this one is not sung by all the redeemed of all ages. It's just sung by this group of Israelites, 12,000 from each tribe. The audience of this new song is before the throne, before the four beasts, before the elders. That would indicate that This is in heaven. 
Revelation 4 introduced us to the scene in heaven, the glorious throne and the one who sat on it, the 24 elders that were seated on their thrones surrounding his throne, the four beasts, they were all there, and that was the scene in heaven. Who are the singers of this particular song? Well, it says that no one could learn that song but 144,000. Some of you say, well, I can, I can sing a song. If I hear it once, I can, I can sing it again. You won't be able to learn the song that they're singing. And back in Revelation 5, 9, the four beasts and the 24 elders sang a new song. It says in Revelation 5, 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so there, too, is a song of redemption, but this particularly is sung only by the 144,000. It says they have been redeemed from the earth. Listen to what Henry Morris writes about this singing. Although in one sense all saved people have been redeemed from the earth, these could, these could know the meaning of such a theme in a more profound way than others. They have been saved after the rapture. At that time in history when man's greatest persecutions and God's greatest judgments were on the earth. So they're going to sing it with a little bit different meaning. A little bit different context than what you and I sing. Still a song of redemption. But think of what they are going through to sing that song. They're undefiled. They haven't been with women. This could have to do with the Old Testament regulations of abstinence during war. Or it could be a symbolism showing that they've separated themselves from the wickedness of Babylon. Babylon is called the harlot. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Don't you like that phrase? Don't you want to live that way in, our, in the church age? I want to follow the lamb wherever he leads, wherever he goes. What loyalty. And you think about this context when the ruling satanic power are the Antichrist and the false prophet... Here are a band of soldiers who have joined the forces of the Lamb of God. These were redeemed from among men. They're human. They're called the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. In the Old Testament, you remember the first, first fruits were those, uh, the first things that grew of the harvest, of the crop, and they would bring those to the Lord. And it meant that they realized that God was getting the first, and there was going to be more to follow. In 1 Corinthians 16, 15, the household of Stephanus were called the first fruits of Achaia. That is, more people would be converted in that area, and Achaia was the narrow strip of the northwest side of the Peloponnesus Peninsula, now Greece. And so they were the first fruits. That meant there were going to be more people who were saved in that area. Well, more will follow the Christ, Christ in the tribulation uh, after the salvation of these 144,000 who are sealed, who follow Christ. There are two other identifying marks of these, of these men. Their mouths are without guile. They're not involved in spreading the lies of the Antichrist or of Satan. They only tell, speak God's truth. In fact, they're actually used of God 
as witnesses during the tribulation period. They are without fault before the throne of God. That doesn't mean that they're not sinless, but they're not blameless. No one can blame them because God has forgiven them. As are those who have been sanctified positionally in the sight of God through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's each blood-bought believer sanctified. And so we are, in his eyes, without fault before the throne of God. The next section in verses 6 through 12, we see three messages given by three angels. Uh, Interesting that the word is the same in the Greek for message and angel. So they're a messenger. Number The first message of the eternal gospel that will be preached during the tribulation is in verse 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the middle of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Notice first that it's an everlasting gospel. The gospel doesn't change from age to age. It's always the same. There's only one way for people to be saved. It is through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. That was the payment for our sins. His blood is the only means of redemption. Faith in Christ as the Son of God, who lived a sinless life, who died a sacrificial death, who was buried and rose again, that's the gospel. That's the only thing that will bring a person to faith in Christ. It doesn't change. It's an everlasting gospel. Paul said it in Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. What a wonderful message. It's an unchanging truth. It'll be true in the tribulation period as it is now. That's the gospel. It's always universal in its invitation. Notice it is here, even in the tribulation time. Those who dwell on the earth, every nation, that's ethnicity, every language, every people group. The message they will preach, notice, is fear God and give glory to him. The motivation for them to do that, to respond to that gospel, is because the hour of his judgment is come. The one who offers salvation is the one whose judgment is coming. The further response of the redeemed, worship him. Why? Because he's the creator of everything. The second message is given about Babylon's destruction in verse 8. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now Peter, uh, in his his writing in 1 Peter 5.13 makes a reference to Rome, and he calls Rome Babylon. It symbolizes the the wickedness of the kingdom of this world, that one world system, that global empire at the end times. And God will destroy Babylon, why? Because she led others away from the truth. 
It says that she caused all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And so because they participated in her wickedness, they'll also reap the wrath. And it's pictured in this drinking of the cup of wine. All the contents of the cup of God's judgment. They'll drink it all. The third angel is, delivers the message of God's wrath in verses 9 through 12. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. What a different concept. When we saw it last week, you take the image, you'll be able to do commerce, buy and sell. You'll survive. But here's the reality. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So God's wrath will come upon all those who worship the beast and the image and receive his mark. They'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Again, drinking all of the judgment of God's wrath, not escaping any of it. Notice that it's poured out without mixture. It's undiluted. They will taste the full force of his indignation, of how God feels about sin. The indignation here is the, the Greek word orge. It's vengeance, anger, wrath. He'll be tormented with fire and brimstone. Who? Those who worship the beast, again, and take the mark of, his, of the beast. The, this brimstone, or fire, is, is sulfur. It's the same punishment that's described as falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. In the presence of the holy angels, angels will witness, the good angels will witness this destruction. In the presence of the Lamb, Jesus will see this destruction. In fact, Jesus will judge the earth. In John 5, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. The one who gave himself a sacrifice so that man could have eternal salvation will be the one who gives the verdict of eternal punishment. Why? Because they rejected that salvation that he offered. The smoke of the torment will ascend forever. As I read that, I thought about the Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor. Maybe you've been there. And they always point out the fuel that's still coming out of the wreckage of the USS Arizona. It leaks about two to nine quarts of fuel per day into the harbor. The environmentalists are really upset about that. It's thought that there are still a half million gallons of fuel still contained in the hull of the ship. One day, that that symbol of the destruction that took place at Pearl Harbor will end. But the smoke from the fires of hell will continue forever and ever. They'll have no rest 
day and night. That is, those that will have their eternity in hell. Their identity is repeated at the end of verse 11 from verse 9. Who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Walvard, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, says the doctrine doctrine of eternal punishment, though unpopular with liberal scholars and difficult to accept, is nevertheless clearly taught in the Bible. Jesus and the Apostle John say more on this subject than does all the rest of the Bible. We don't hear it preached from pulpits much anymore. But if people would believe that there is an eternal health, wouldn't it change the way we witness to people? Those who are saints are encouraged to do three things. To be patient, to keep the commandments of God, and to keep the faith of Jesus Christ. I got to thinking, if these three admonitions are to encourage those who are in the second half of the tribulation, when Satan and the Antichrist are the angriest at God that they can be, they're letting everything loose, then don't you think that these are good admonitions for us in the day and age which we live? What are they? Be patient. James 5, 7 says... Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. You say, well, I, 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 I don't know why it's taking him so long. Be patient. He's waiting for others to come to Christ. Well, I don't know why the Lord hasn't taken me home. I'm going through such suffering and such pain. Be patient. What a great admonition. When you face the things that you face today, think this is the same thing that's required of tribulation saints. Be patient. Keep obeying what God has said. Keep the commandments of God. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Some people say, well, you, you go to church and you, you have to do all those, you know, have to obey all those commandments. Isn't that hard to live that way? Oh, it's not grievous at all. In fact, I find myself wanting to obey those commandments. It pleases the Lord. The third is keep the faith. Jude 3 says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. When we come to verse 13, there's a pronouncement of blessing on faithful saints. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And their works do follow them. John Wolverd says this passage is often quoted in regard to God's general blessings on all Christians. We've heard it that way. He says, but the context indicates that the blessing is especially for those who died in the great tribulation. For them, it is a blessed release from persecution, torture, and trial, and a deliverance into the glorious presence of the Lord. What a contrast. Those in verse 11 will be tormented forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. But those who die in the Lord are blessed. It's taken from the Beatitudes, the same Greek word, makarios. It means blessed or even well off, happy. (laughs) Happy are those who die in the Lord. 
Why? Because they're in the Lord. That is, they've put their faith in him. Galatians 3.26 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you become his child, putting your faith in him. But also, people that are saints in the New Testament are referred to as being in Christ Jesus. That is, positionally, you're in him. Romans 16.11 is one such case. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. (laughs) What a great description of where you are as a believer. You put your faith in him, and now you're in the Lord. And so here's this blessing for tribulation saints. Blessed are they who are in the Lord. From henceforth, that can mean from now on, that is from the time of their redemption forward, or it could have an emphatic meaning, meaning a blessed assuredly are the dead who die in the Lord. We come now to verses 14 through 20, the last section of our chapter, a vision of judgment to come on the earth. And I looked, and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust thy in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which was in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud, uh, loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle in the, into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And we have at the beginning one sitting on the cloud, like unto the Son of Man. And people have disagreed on whether this is Christ or whether this is an angel. Those who argue that it's an angel point to the fact that there is no definite article before son of man. So it reads, one sat like unto a son of man, a human. Also, the text reads, another angel in verse 15. And there it uses that word alas, which is another of the same kind. So the first kind was also an angel, they'll they'll argue. Maybe one of the strongest arguments is, that it's unlikely that an angel would tell Jesus that now's the time to thrust in your sickle and reap from the earth. Others say that this person on the cloud is Christ. He's responsible for judging the earth. And in the picture here, we see something of divine majesty. He's on a cloud, a symbol of power and glory. Jesus himself said in Luke 21, 27, And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. His second coming will be in a cloud. Here on his head was a crown of gold, in his hand a sharp sickle. Let's look at the harvest of the grain and the harvest of grapes at the end of this chapter. 
Dr. Custer says some expositors hold that the wheat harvest or the grain harvest refers to the harvest of good saints, that is, tribulation saints. They're being reaped from the earth. Alfred, Sweet, Scott, and Osborne are all authors that hold that position. But he says most premillennial expositors hold that they both refer to the campaign of Armageddon. Sice, Newell, Smith, Gabeline. So here is a harvest, probably speaking of the last battle or campaign against Christ and against his people. There are three angels with messages. The first calls for the one upon the cloud to harvest the earth. He came out of the temple. He said, thrust in your sickle. It's time to reap. The reason given, the, the harvest on earth is ripe. That word ripe there indicates that something is overly ripe. It's past time to harvest. It's withered. And in that sense, I see that God is patient. He's given man plenty of opportunity, plenty of time before judgment falls. The one on the cloud thrusts his sickle and reap the earth. The second angel came out of the temple and also had a sharp sickle, verses 17 through 19. Verse 18, the third angel came from the altar and cried for that angel with the sickle to harvest the grapes. And he said, for the grapes are fully ripe at the end of verse 18. This is a different word from the harvest being overripe in the grain harvest. Here the grapes on the vine are full grown. This is the perfect time for them to be harvested. The angel gathered the grapes, threw them into the wine press of God's wrath. And instead of juice from grapes being stomped on out of the wine press, here the result is blood that filled an area 1,600 furlongs. That's 180 miles. And as deep as a horse's bridle. Some people say that's impossible. Walford says this is probably referring to the fact that the ground will be so saturated with blood that it will splash up to the horse's bridle. And he calls it a graphic picture of a great slaughter. Isaiah prophesied the victory of Christ over the armies of the world in the final battle of Armageddon. Megiddo is the plain. The, the word har at the beginning is mountain, the mountain of Megiddo, and that's the city of Armageddon. But Megiddo will be that plain, the plain of Jezreel, where the final battle will take place. Isaiah 63.1 tells what's happening after that battle. He asks, Who is he that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This, is, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Again, when we think about what we read this week in Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4, uh, we have here the picture of Christ when he's returning, uh, putting his feet on the Mount of Olives. So I think what will happen first, and I think David Jeremiah has preached this, 
that he'll, he will go to Basra, he will come from Basra where that battle will be taking place. And then he comes to the Mount of Olives. But in Zechariah 14, 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and west. That is, the, the, the fissure will be between east and west, uniting those two seas. Um, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall be removed to, to the north, and half of it to the south. As we read these chapters, and we consider what will take place, we have to remember that warnings have been given. Judgment is coming. Those who read and hear the warning of coming judgment must make a decision. Am I going to believe it? Am I going to heed it? Am I, um, am I going to respond to it? Take steps to, to uh, be saved so that I won't have to face that judgment. Those who heed the warning will run to the one who can save them. If they don't, they'll face the judgment of the wrath of God. Those alive in the tribulation will have an opportunity to come and be saved. God has given us his word. We have the gospel that can rescue men from their sins. It's an eternal gospel. Let's share it with others. We have the promise that one day he'll rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years and then into eternity. Let's rejoice that he is our king right now. Let's submit to his rule. If he is the king of your life, you'll want to do his will. Submit to his will. Submit to his rule. Give him the honor and the glory with hearts and voices of praise. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the fact that you're in control of all things. We rejoice that you're the king of kings. And we look forward to that day when you will stand on the Mount of Olives, having returned for your own, having destroyed the enemies that you have faced all your life, for, for all of the earth's life. And we thank you for the victory that will be seen on that day. Help us to go forth knowing that we don't fight for the victory, but we fight in the victory. We thank you that the victory was won when Jesus Christ conquered sin and death at Calvary's cross. Now give us an urgency and a more, a more of a, a compassion, a sense that time is short, and help us to warn others of what's coming and give them the opportunity to, es to escape that wrath through salvation by faith in Christ. Bless us now as we dismiss in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.